Amazon Books, your weekly program about great reads through book talks, trailers, and first chapters. Presented by Mrs. Winningham and Mrs. Kovach. I'm Mrs. West, and this is Legend by Marie Lu. Legend is a gripping thriller in Dive's topic, Future Los Angeles. This is no didactic near-future warning of present evils, but a cinematic adventure featuring endearing, compelling heroes. A romantic thriller set in a post-apocalyptic world where nothing is what it seems. Legend is impossible to put down and even harder to forget. Chapter 1. My mother thinks I'm dead. Obviously, I'm not dead, but it's safer for her to think so. At least twice a month, I see my wanted poster flashed on the jumbotrons scattered throughout downtown Los Angeles. It looks out of place up there. Most of the pictures on the screens are of happy things. Smiling children standing under a bright blue sky. Tourists posing before the Golden Gate ruins. Republic commercials in neon colors. There's also anti-colonies propaganda. The colonies want our land, the ads declare. They want what they don't have. Don't let them conquer your home. Support the cause. Then there's my criminal report. It lights up the jumbotron in all its multicolored glory. Wanted by the Republic. File number 46217832333. Day. Wanted for assault, arson, theft, destruction of military property, and hindering the war effort. 200,000 Republic notes for information leading to arrest. They always have a different photo running alongside the report. One time it was a boy with glasses and a head full of thick copper curls. Another time it was a boy with black eyes and no hair at all. Sometimes I'm black, sometimes white, sometimes olive or brown or yellow or red or whatever else they can think of. In other words, the Republic has no idea what I look like. They don't seem to know much of anything about me except that I'm young and that when they run my fingerprints, they don't find a match in their databases. That's why they hate me. Why I'm not the most dangerous criminal in the country, but the most wanted. I make them look bad. It's early evening, but it's already pitch black outside, and the jumbotron's reflections are visible in the street's puddles. I sit on a crumbling window ledge three stories up, hidden from view behind rusted steel beams. This used to be an apartment complex, but has fallen into disrepair. Broken lanterns and glass shards litter the floor of this room, and paint is peeling from every wall. In one corner, an old portrait of the electo Elector Primo lies face up on the ground. I wonder who used to live here. No one's cracked enough to let their portrait of the Elector sit discarded on the floor like that. My hair, as usual, is tucked inside an old newsboy cap. My eyes are fixed on the small one-story house across the road. My hands fiddle with the pendant tied around my neck. Tess leans against the room's other window, watching me closely. I'm restless tonight, and as always, she can sense it. The plague has hit the lake sector hard. In the glow of the jumbotrons, Tess and I can see the soldiers at the end of the street as they inspect each home, their black capes shiny and worn loose in the heat. Each of them wears a gas mask. Sometimes when they emerge, they mark a house by painting a big red X on the front door. No one enters or leaves the home after that, at least not when anyone's looking. Still don't see them, Tess whispers. Shadows conceal her expression. In an attempt to distract myself, I'm piecing together a makeshift slingshot out of old PVC pipes. They haven't eaten dinner. They haven't sat down by the table in hours. I shift and stretch out my bad knee. Maybe they're not home. I shoot Tess an irritated glance. She's trying to console me, but I'm not in the mood. 
A lamp's lit. Look at those candles. Mom would never waste candles if no one was home. Tess moves closer. We should leave the city for a couple weeks, yeah? She tries to keep her voice calm, but the fear is there. Soon the plague will have blown through and you can come back to visit. We have more than enough money for two train tickets. I shake my head. One night a week, remember? Just let me check up on them one night a week. Yeah, well, you've been coming here every night this week. I just want to make sure they're okay. What if you get sick? I'll take my chances. And you didn't have to come with me. You could have waited for me back in Alta. Tess shrugs. Somebody has to keep an eye on you. Two years younger than me, although sometimes she sounds old enough to be my caretaker. We look on in silence as the soldiers draw closer to my family's house. Every time they stop at a home, one soldier pounds on the door while a second stands next to him with his gun drawn. If no one opens the door within 10 seconds, the first soldier kicks it in. I can't see them once they rush inside, but I know the drill. A soldier will draw a blood sample from each family member, then plug it into a handheld reader and check for the plague. The whole process takes 10 minutes. I count the houses between where the soldiers are now and where my family lives. I'll have to wait another hour before I know their fate. A shriek echoes from the other side of the street. My eyes dart toward the sound and my hand whips to the knife sheathed at my belt and Tess sucks in her breath. It's a plague victim. She must have been deteriorating for months because her skin is cracked and bleeding everywhere. And I find myself wondering how the soldiers could have missed this one during previous inspections. She stumbles around for a while, disoriented, then charges forward only to trip and fall to her knees. I glance back toward the soldiers. They see her now. The soldier with the drawn weapon approaches, while the 11 others stay where they are and look on. One plague victim isn't much of a threat. The soldier lifts his gun and aims. A volley of sparks engulfs the infected woman. She collapses and then goes still. The soldier rejoins his comrades. I wish we could get our hands on one of those soldiers' guns. A pretty weapon like that doesn't cost much on the market. 480 notes, less than a stove. Like all guns, it has precision, guided by magnets and electric currents, and can ac accurately shoot a target three blocks away. It's tech stolen from the colonies, Dad once said, although, of course, the Republic would never tell you that. Tess and I could buy five of them if we wanted. Over the years, we've learned to stockpile the extra money we steal and stash it away for emergencies. But the real problem with having a gun isn't the expense. It's that it's so easy to trace back to you. Each gun has a sensor on it that reports its user's hand shape, thumbprints, and location. If that didn't give me away, nothing would. So I'm left with my homemade weapons, PVC pipe slingshots, and other trinkets. They found another one, Tess says. She squints to get her better look. I look down and see the soldiers spill from another house. One of them shakes a can of spray paint and draws a giant red X on the door. I know that house. My family that lives there once had a little girl my age. My brothers and I played with her when we were younger. Freeze tag and street hockey with iron pokers and crumpled paper. Tess tries to distract me by nodding at the clock bundle near my feet. What'd you bring them? I smiled and reached down to untie the cloth. Some of the stuff we saved up this week, it'll make for a nice celebration once they pass the inspection. I dig through the little pile of goodies inside the bundle, then hold up a used pair of goggles. I check them again to make sure there are no cracks in the glass. For John, an early birthday gift. My older brother turns 19 later this week. He works 14-hour shifts in the neighborhood plant's friction stoves and always comes home rubbing his eyes from the smoke. These goggles were a lucky steal from a military supply shipment. I put them down and shuffle through the rest of the stuff. It's mostly tins of meat and potato hash I stole from an airship's cafeteria 
and an old pair of shoes with intact soles. I wish I could be in the room with all of them when I deliver this stuff, but John's the only one who knows I'm alive, and he's promised not to tell Mom or Eden. Eden turns 10 in two months, which means that in two months, he'll have to take the trial. I failed my own trial when I was 10. That's why I worry about Eden, because even though he's easily the smartest of us three boys, he thinks a lot like I do. When I finished my trial, I felt so sure of my answers that I didn't even bother to watch them graded. But then the admins ushered me into a corner of the trial stadium with a bunch of other kids. They stamped something on my test and stuffed me onto a train headed downtown. I didn't get to take anything except the pendant I wore around my neck. I didn't even get to say goodbye. Several different things could happen after you take the trial. You get a perfect score, 1,500 points. No one's ever gotten this. Well, except for some kid a few years ago who the military made a gaudy fuss over. Who knows what happens to someone with a score that high? Probably lots of money and power, yeah? You score between a 1450 and a 1499. Pat yourself on the back because you'll get instant access to six years of high school and then four at the top universities in the Republic, Drake, Stanford, and Brennan. Then Congress hires you and you make a lot of money. Joy and happiness follow, at least according to the Republic. You get a good score somewhere between 1250 and 1449 points. You get to continue on to high school, and then you're assigned to a college. Not bad. You squeak by with a score between 1000 and 1249. Congress bars you from high school. You join the poor, like my family. You'll probably either drown while working the water turbines or get steamed to death in the power plants. You fail. It's almost always the slum sector kids who fail. If you're in this unlucky category, the Republic sends officials to your family's home. They make your parents sign a contract giving the government full custody over you. They say that you've been sent away to the Republic's labor camps and that your family will not see you again. Your parents have to nod and agree. A few even celebrate because the Republic gives them 1,000 notes as a condolence gift. Money and one less mouth to feed? What a thoughtful government. Except all this is a lie. An inferior child with bad genes is no use to the country. If you're lucky, Congress will let you die without first sending you to the labs to be examined for imperfections.